Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at educatinglaura. Hello all, thank you so much for choosing to spend a little bit of time with me. It is Monday the 26th that this episode is being released and honestly, I know that I have gone to fortnightly episodes to kind of minimize my work output, but I've been holding on to this episode since the holidays and it's been very, very hard for me because I'm so excited for you to hear it. It is a conversation I have with two of my colleagues from school. They're both health educators and I always knew that they were great educators, but I didn't have a lot of opportunity to look into their curriculum and see what they were doing. And when I was doing emergency teaching, I had the privilege of taking some of their classes and looking at the curriculum that they have developed, especially at middle school, where they have a lot of autonomy and super lucky at my school in that health and PE are separate. And so you get to have really in-depth content around health and wellness and sexuality and consent. And I feel like this is incredibly topical after the government's $3.8 million ad campaign where they depict consent without using the word consent and using food like pizza and milkshakes and tacos and having the female as the perpetrator in that situation, which If you haven't seen it, you must see it. I will have a link in the show notes for you because, look, I do try and keep relatively neutral on things, but this was a very, very problematic ad campaign and certainly very tone deaf. We also talk about the pressure on our teens outside of just the health and wellness space and talk about things like the college admissions scandal, which is a Netflix semi-documentary I suppose Matthew Modine is in it so but it's very interesting because obviously that's a real thing in which people were paying for their children to get into the Ivy League schools despite the fact that they didn't necessarily deserve it academically or in any other fashion except for the fact that they had money we talk about the Khloe Kardashian scandal the photo scandal which again deeply problematic because we see her as a victim of her family as well as a perpetrator. And I think that it's quite a complex issue. I don't want to take up any more time other than to say that I love this conversation. I'm really proud of this conversation. And I challenge you to consider what your education was like around health, sex, consent, sexuality, whether it was empowering or whether it was shameful or whether it was in fact lacking altogether. Because I'm so proud of what these educators are doing, what Cam and Emma are doing. And I'm grateful that this is the way that education is moving and that we are doing things so, well, just in a way that allows our young people to show up in the world empowered and educated. If you are enjoying this conversation, please share it with the people that you know would like it. Share it on social media. Tag me at Educating Laura. Subscribe to the show or follow along with the show if you're on Spotify. If you're enjoying this and would like to give back to the podcast, you are welcome to buy me a virtual coffee. Information's in the show notes. And here is my chat with Cam and Emma. Ooh.
Hello, Cam and Emma. It's so lovely to have you here today. How are you? Good, thanks, Laura. Thank you for having us. Fantastic. It's school holidays, so how can I not be glorious? <laughs> I'd love to start by asking what kind of students you were, and Emma, I might give you the floor first. Sure. Um, as a student, I was definitely very, very social, um, which hasn't changed, and loved the okay. social aspects of school. Probably at times talked too much for my teachers, which now has come back mirrored in some of my students that I see, and I definitely have a newfound respect for the teachers that dealt with that. But no, generally loved school a lot. What about you, Cam? I would say I was a very, very shy student, probably borderline painfully shy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a student who, who generally lacked a lot of confidence, quite anxious. Probably like my worst nightmare would be to, to be exposed in front of people, to be asked a question or... Public speaking or speaking in front of the class was, yeah, really hard. So I think back to my you know, high school days and it was a lot of being uncomfortable and a lot of being nervous. And I guess it's funny that I ended up being a teacher, that I was able to kind of get through that. But, yeah, I think it's given me a really good perspective, especially for those more quiet kids in my class, that, yeah, I was one of those students who probably flew under the radar. I was a good student. I did everything I had to do. I probably didn't go above and beyond what I had to do but I think my teachers would say I was a good student but I would probably be surprised if many of my teachers remember me to be honest I was yeah very quiet very shy and lots of anxiety so that was that was my life as a student I guess. I had Nat on who you know in one of the first episodes and she talks about that too about the idea of picking a student out of nowhere or getting a student to read without warning and it's something that I remember as a student being deeply uncomfortable doing And yet when you're in the classroom as a teacher, you often do it without thinking. Have you ever thought about ways of doing that better, Cam, considering that was something that was difficult for you? Yeah, I think I've become attuned to recognising those students in my class early. And I think especially with new classes that I have, I'm always reluctant to to want to put kids on the spot within the first couple of weeks. I think within that time, you get a sense of personalities and you get a sense of strengths and weaknesses. And I think I'm able to to recognize students who that would be something that they would find really challenging. So yeah, I'm the same. I'm someone who, you know, I hate role plays and I hate kids coming up Mm. the front and talking in front of class only because as a student, I found that really difficult. So I always, I guess if I'm, you know, random calling or if I'm cold calling students it's always with the knowledge of of who they are as individuals and I'll always give them an out there'll always be an opportunity if they're not comfortable to be able to to give an answer or present information in a different way so yeah I'm certainly not someone who makes students do things that they're really uncomfortable with just to get out of their comfort zone I think there's sort of softer ways that you can you can do it without creating that environment where yeah, kids do feel really uncomfortable. And I know for me, it probably blocked a lot of learning because I'd with with fear and nerves that I probably did block out a lot of the content that was going on. So, yeah, I'd like to think um, I can create a safe place in my classrooms where kids are still challenged, but not to the point where, you know, it, it pushes on those anxieties. Mm. And you, Emma, saying that you're very social and perhaps outspoken, how do you foster that? within students in your room without it becoming distraction? Really similar to what Cam said before with gauging their needs early. I always give a survey to new classes 
of how they feel most comfortable learning and their strengths and weaknesses and things. And I found particularly in the past couple of years that that anxiety surrounding random calling has increased Mm. significantly. And as I said, even though I was very, very social and sometimes at times too much so, I very much would have been nervous to speak in front of the big group as well myself. Mm. So I think... As a teacher, because I'm much more comfortable with myself now, I'm really, really fine with making a fool of myself in front of the students all the time. So I'll do, like as Cam said, with role plays and things, I'm quite comfortable doing silly things like that and making a fool of myself in front of them to get a laugh. Shameless laughs. I've got a captive audience. Why not? (laughs) And I think if I can break down down those barriers with them as much as I can and pick up on all those social cues once you get to know their personalities, it's really, really lovely when you see them come out of their shell a little bit when they're more comfortable. But definitely I try to avoid random calling more now, particularly after COVID last year, their anxiety mm. levels have increased significantly. So that's definitely something that I've had to put even more of my kind of time and energy into, I think. Mentioning COVID, I did a post on Instagram around the COVID hangover and the kind of remnants and what we've been left with after COVID. Now I was on family leave for most of last year, but I'm certainly seeing the impacts coming back into the classroom. What are you seeing after all the remote learning from last year? What are you guys seeing in the room? I know for me, especially with the the senior students with my year 12s, I don't know whether it's a COVID thing or whether it's just a, a cohort thing, but I think there's definitely a sense of, of them needing a lot of support and mm. needing a lot of assistance and reassurance and motivation to get things done. I feel like in the past, and it is different, every class you have is different, but you know they're often self-directed by year 12 and, and they can and get things done and they can be motivated. But I've felt so far this year, as harsh as it sounds, there's been a lot of hand-holding and a lot of having to cajole and, and get them through, and whether that's because they were so supported last year. I know it was tough for everyone, but I feel like our students, they did have a lot of support from their teachers and there was a lot of checking in and a lot of seeing how they're going and that's a really good thing. But I think maybe coming back this year, they're still needing that a little bit and whether some of them are using that as a, as a bit of a crutch or... I don't want to say an excuse, but I think there's definitely a hangover there and it's just really hard to know where that line is Mm. between, you know, sort of saying, let's come on, let's go. It's not last year anymore. We've got to get on with it versus, you know, understanding that there's probably still some symptoms of last year and how to get them through that as best they can. But probably that from the motivation sense and even from the study skills, I think, you know, that that 12 months, we can see that Mm. in terms of their study skills and their ability just to take notes and get things done and retain information. I think there's some gaps there that that have come through and that we're probably going to have to work on as the year goes on, for sure. What about you, Em? For sure, the gaps there, I think, because particularly if I'm looking at young year levels as well, I think our year 10 attendance was really, really poor throughout COVID last year, sadly. And I think we've effectively got year 9s in year 11, year 10s in year 12, Mm. And you've got that gap, but then on top of that, because they were in such varied home environments last year and just on their screens so much, I'm finding that their concentration levels are much, much lower this year. That's been something, just getting them to try and concentrate for long periods of time and just always wanting to get up and walk around. I think because they were at home so much last year, 
they could just go to the toilet and get a drink whenever they liked and things like that. And it's just been those little things of in terms of organisation, just being able to settle back into the classroom environment, like, come on, guys, you're not in your lounge room now type thing, Mm. because it was such a significant adjustment for them and a huge change. But I think socially as well, I think because they were all behind their screens last year so much, there was lots of, I think, comments made to each other and there's been a big adjustment with now their face-to-face again. So I think there's been a lot of, I guess, the pecking order and the social dynamic has changed a lot coming back this year as well. So as Pam said, the neediness has been real, definitely. I feel like I've taken on more of a counsellor role in the past 12 months in my job than ever before. I agree. I think there's much more checking in this year than I've ever done before in terms of where they're at, what I can be doing, how we can work more together rather than feeling like I have my hand on the pulse. I feel like I'm constantly this back and forth between the class and where we can move together because it just doesn't feel steady for me yet. Yeah, Yeah, I would agree with that. How do you guys learn best? Um, So, I mean, as I said before that I'm a really social person, I've always very much been one of those people that if I teach somebody else, that's 100% how I learn best. I would often um, come home and just tell my family members, my cat, it didn't matter, just anything that I've learned that day at school. And I think that repetition aspect and you can take something on and you can repeat it, but I think if you can teach that to somebody else, that's where it really sinks in. And that was a definite one for me. I think more so than just writing, more so than visual, definitely language aspect for me. And music, I'm quite a musical person anyway, sing and play guitar and those kind of things. So I had certain songs that I would listen to that would spark memory for me when I was studying and things like that. And I love getting the kids to teach each other now in my classes because of that. They all have differing ways that they learn as well, but I love to see them getting passionate about something and coming in the next day and saying, I told my whole family about it and I taught my whole family about it last night. And that just really gives me a little, I don't know, warm feeling in my heart when they learn in a similar style to how I did. What about you, Cam? Very visual in terms of learning style, but I think I can learn different ways, but, you know, essentially I have to be passionate about what I'm learning. I find it really difficult to to learn and retain information when I'm looking at topics that I'm not super passionate about. So I find if I'm if I'm into it, if I'm passionate, if I can see the the benefit of what I'm learning or I know how it's going to transfer to to something that benefits me, I'm kind of all in and I'm engrossed in it and learning happens quite easily. But I've also had lots of times where, yeah, I haven't been passionate about it and I can't see the benefit of it and I'm not sure how I'm ever going to be able to use it and that often creates a block for me. So that's for me, that's always the big thing in terms of how is this applied, how is this benefiting me and and if I'm passionate about it, then it seems to sink in easily, which I'm sure is the case for most people. But, yeah, throughout my life I know I've always learnt best when, when I'm engaged in the topic for sure. Why teaching, Emma? Why did you choose to become a teacher? I think for me, it was definitely huge role models in my life that inspired me. Both of my parents are teachers. So I was really, really fortunate to have them as insanely positive role models. I know it can be the opposite for many people and they can have family members who are teachers and say, never do it. But (laughs) mum and dad always had such an incredibly positive experience with it. And I saw the lifestyle that came along with that. And I think naturally I've 
pose a lot of the same skill set that my parents do. Also then having really positive role models as teachers that just really inspired me. Having, you know, a couple of really standout teachers for me in certain subjects that just really inspired me to think, gee, this is a really, really positive and fun thing to do. In saying that, though, even before I um, had finished year 12, I still wasn't sure. I had a few different preferences down. I had midwifery, I had teaching, I had speech pathology. They were the three kind of ones I had. And I often say to students now, you may not even know by the end of year 12, and that's okay. That's completely okay. I didn't either. And now I'm doing something that I can never, ever see myself not doing. So it's totally cool if you're not sure right up until the end. Mm. And what about you, Cam? Yeah, I certainly wasn't sure. And like I said, from my experiences of school, and they weren't all bad, I had some really good experiences of high school, but I certainly wouldn't have picked teaching as a career. And and it wasn't something that I chose out of high school and even university. I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. So it probably got to the point where I'd tried a few different things and a lot of them revolved around sport and coaching and working in basketball and working with young kids and it just seemed to it seemed to fit it seemed to make sense to me never really knowing what career path I wanted but I guess then looking at you know what do I enjoy what am I okay at and then putting those things together seemed to be a good fit teaching and my wife now but you know my partner girlfriend fiance at the time she she was teaching and she was at university so I was able to get, I guess, a little bit of an insight into the job. And yeah, it was probably more something I fell into just because of the things that I enjoyed. But in saying that, it's, it's been a, you know, it's been a great decision and yeah, not something that I, I would have seen myself doing, but something that I've definitely grown into and um, I'm quite passionate about now. Yeah. So what was the university course you chose directly out of school then? So I did health promotion, which was applied okay. sciences and yeah, it was, it was a good degree. I, again, I wasn't an amazing university student, mm. kind of floated my way through and again, not really knowing what job was going to be at the end of it was always hard. And it's one of those degrees where there's not really a lot of jobs at the end of your degree. So uh, I got through it. I enjoyed parts of it, but then it was yeah three or four years where I'd worked in different jobs, really nothing to do with the degree that I got. But looking back at that now, if I hadn't have done that, I would never have been able to to teach health education now. So it's amazing how you look back at things and, and things kind of work yeah. out in a funny way, uh, in a positive way. But look back at that degree now and it didn't get me where I wanted to go at the time, but it's certainly gone a long way to to getting me where I want to be at the moment. So yeah, it's really interesting. I've had so many conversations with people about the way that teachers are trained and majority of people just talk about the lack of practicality, that we are not in the classroom long enough. I feel as though I can't speak too much to that because I did one year dip ed, 10 weeks of in-class. Clearly I was never going to get lots of in-classroom experience with a one-year diploma. What are your thoughts? If we could have some input into that system and and train teachers differently, how could we do it better in your opinion? I completely agree that there's not enough practicality to it. But I also do think that within uni courses, a lot more of the content could be so much more applicable. Like Cam was saying earlier, that you have to be passionate about something and see how it can be applied effectively to want to learn it. Um, And for me, so I did health PE and outdoor ed as my degree. And I remember we had to do at one point a 3,000 word essay on the word experience and what the word experience meant. And I thought, 
That's really ironic because I'd love to actually be getting practical experience right now or or even some of the content that we're studying and you need the assignments to be based more around lesson planning and curriculum documentation and things like that rather than so many essays and essay-based curriculum. And also you just do need the practical element. You need it to know, A, whether you would want to do it as a full-time job all the time effectively and it really is practical so it has to be trial and error like cam i didn't go into teaching straight away either i worked for the butterfly foundation for three and a half years and that was a lot of practical experience because i was traveling around to all different primary and secondary schools around victoria Um, and i think that gave me just so much practical experience because i was in different schools every day you definitely need more just in classroom experience 100%. I think too though like I remember doing units of work and writing rubrics and all of that kind of thing and they said to us at the end of my degree or my diploma that take all of these with you you'll then be able to use them and implement them well none of them were applicable there was all this great work that was either too high brown not realistic not in the curriculum of the school and so you did all of this work that was really tokenistic in the end. And I think that if you had more ability to create a unit of work and then deliver, you would understand how a unit of work needs to be developed because all of the things that we were patting ourselves on the back for at university, at a university level, was completely irrelevant once I got in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the um, the end goal. Yeah, and that's the feedback that you get from so many of those pre-service teachers is that, They just don't feel like what they're doing has any benefit to them being in the classroom. And I know for me, from my experiences, being a mentor, I find a lot of Mm. pre-service teachers, just their content knowledge is so poor and it's not their fault. Mm. But you'll say to a fourth year, you know, are you happy to teach a three-week unit on nutrition? And and they'll be so anxious about not having any knowledge about nutrition or, uh, you know, are you comfortable teaching drugs and alcohol? And they'll say, well, I'll have to learn it all before I teach it. And you sort of think, well, what's been happening? Like, what's gone on in those four years? If you're trained to be a health teacher, I, I understand the pedagogy and the, you know, the research behind it. But the, I think the the lack of content knowledge then becomes a little bit of a barrier to them focusing on their teaching and learning. I think they get so wrapped up in the content, and I have to learn it before I teach it that they're they're super focused on the content when really that experience should be about being in front of a class and building relationships and building rapport and dealing with difficult circumstances and how comfortable are you in your own skin as a teacher and working through that with a really supportive mentor. Good mentors are worth their weight in gold for pre-service teachers. But uh, I think because the content knowledge is so poor, that becomes the focus and I think it does them a disservice because, yeah, then they miss out on that opportunity to really develop as teachers and that's what we're there for. We're not there to disseminate information. We're there to, to be educators and I think that's that's where we fall down a lot of the time with our pre-service teachers from my experience anyway. But if I also consider the way that information was delivered to me as an education student, it was through lectures and tutorials, but the tutorials were very much here's some work here's a worksheet this is the assignment we're working towards there wasn't a lot of modeling there wasn't a lot of you know variation in the way information was delivered and so I think that the natural thing to do is when you get overwhelmed is to resort back to very basic teaching like writing on the board printing out a worksheet 
you know, maybe doing a quiz or something like that. And I mean, that's, I've had a number of primary school teachers on here that I know that primary school is so much about the teaching and learning because the content isn't overly complicated. You know, it's much more about delivery and it's much more about the practice of teaching and that's where they really excel. And I think the problem sometimes with high school is that sometimes we're teaching really complicated things. And if you don't know it, you do put that best practice on the back burner to get through that information quickly. Yeah, from a teacher's perspective, it's easy to lose credibility if if your students get a sniff that you're not super yeah. confident with the content. And I think that's a death blow for a for a pre service teacher. If you get up there and you're not confident teaching the content, then the students can sniff that out really quickly, and, and then your whole experience is a little bit tainted yeah. because you've lost that buy in from the students. So, yeah, I, I just feel like that. You're right. I'm not sure whether it's changed since we've been there or not, but that was my experience doing a dip ed, having spent four weeks in a classroom before I was a qualified teacher. I was really lucky to have some great mentors and I I think I learned so much in that four weeks, much more than I ever learned in my whole year of dip ed. But I was lucky that I had some good mentors to be able to learn from and even in my first couple of years of being a teacher, being able to watch other teachers do it, that's where my education began really yeah we work at a school with incredible colleagues that are very supportive and there's a real open door policy we do a lot of peer observations and and good faculty time and you know I I think without that it would be very difficult if you couldn't see how other people teach yeah absolutely and I, I still feel like that as a teacher sometimes that you're never quite sure whether you're doing a good job or not you feel like you've got enough little markers now to to work it out whether you are but yeah I, I would love more people to come into my classroom and give me feedback it's sort of like you get your degree and you're pushed into a classroom and you feel like at times you've got to kind of work it out for yourself but yeah I wish there was more of that I, I get so much out of just being in someone else's classroom and and seeing what they do and seeing how they interact and talk and deliver information and that's gold so yeah, that's, that's definitely something I think we can do more yeah. of even as yeah. you know, trained teachers. I wish we had so much more of that. I would absolutely love to go in and see so many of my colleagues teach. Was there ever a question of primary versus secondary in terms of what teacher you, you were going to be? Not for me. No, not for, I'm not sure why, though. I worked mostly with primary age children. I did a lot of after-school care like I said, a lot of coaching junior athletes and I probably worked more with younger students than I did older. Maybe the health education is much more suited to, to secondary school and, yeah, kind of ended up going down mm. that path, but I'm glad I did. These primary school teachers, they're amazing. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how they do it, but, yeah, obviously different challenges, but, yeah, the big kids for me, for sure. Yeah. What about you, Emma? Um, yeah, same. I've always been secondary, I think, the same with the content with health, just the discussions you can have with secondary age students and things like that. Also, I did in my first year of uni, our placements were primary based. So I got a little taste of that then and I was working in a prep class. And I remember every single night when I would leave, I could not keep my eyes open when I was driving home. And I was thinking, gee, I do not know how prep teachers do it. I honestly, hats off to them. You require it requires so much energy. As much as I love primary age kids, yeah, definitely secondary. So both of you, health teachers, it's the reason I wanted you guys on together. Why health? What do you love teaching about health? Uh, it's really hard because I absolutely just love everything 
about teaching health, but I think um, I feel really, really privileged to teach health as a subject because so many of the topics that we cover are often quite sensitive topics, quite personal topics, and I feel extremely privileged to be able to cover those topics with teenagers and get such a personal insight sometimes into their world and their views and some really, really personal, I guess, emotional topics and things like that that I think, GI, I'm extremely lucky to be hearing this from you that you may not have divulged to many other people in your life, but you're telling me. So I feel pretty blessed and a sense of responsibility with that often as well. I think too, I love kids that are often converts when it comes to VCE, health and human development. They often see it as a subject that potentially might have been just an easy subject or one that they thought they might just kind of breeze through yeah. and then once they actually sink their teeth into it they go oh gee I actually have to work really hard and I had one year 12 last year that honestly said to me at the end of the year I just transferred out of French to this as a last resort and I thought it would be pushed to the side as my easy subject and then he said it actually became the one that I worked the hardest in because I became the most passionate about it that's really amazing to see kids fall in love with it that's, I really, really love that aspect of it as well. What about you, Cam? Yeah, same as Em. It's that, I guess it's the applied nature of the subject as well, that everything we do is applicable to their real life. And yes. I think when you're dealing with teenagers, that's, that's a huge starting point for us to be able to talk about things that impact on them outside of the classroom. And, you know, we often preach that health, you know, is the most important asset that they'll ever have. And I think you know, out of last year, that became evident and the understanding mm. that if we don't have good health, then we really have nothing. Mm. So to have an influence over, I guess, influencing students' decision-making through knowledge, through increasing, you know, their health literacy, it's a massive privilege and it's it's something that we don't take for granted and we don't take it lightly. But yeah, I think for me, it's just that ability for them to be able to see that what what they're learning is beneficial to their life and it's it's not necessarily about marks or grades or test scores or study scores it's about them as people and their relationships and uh, and their own health so yeah like I said as health teachers we have we have that benefit of, of the kids being able to see I guess kind of the benefit of what we're doing which which makes our job much easier yeah. so obviously I was doing emergency teaching for a little while at the school that we both work at or we all work at. And I was really lucky to get some of the health classes so I could see some of the curriculum that you guys are doing at middle school. And since coming, awesome. yeah, and since coming back, I've had some of the, my most amazing discussions with you two about what you're doing in the classroom. And I really am so excited because, well, first of all, I went to a Catholic girls' school. I had nuns teaching me personal development and mm-hmm. – there was very closed conversations and I just thought that that's what was being taught, you know, and it was very, and I thought, I don't know how you're doing it. I don't, I don't know how you would teach health. I remember as a biology teacher, we would always have one unit that you could never get through in year 11. And I made sure it was the reproductive unit because I was like, I'm not (laughs) conversations. I'm not doing it. Just so intimidating for me. And then when I was walking, look, and you're laughing so much at me, but I then looked at what you guys were doing and I thought, I want to be in this class and I'm so glad that my kids get to go through school with that kind of curriculum. Emma, you're head of health currently. I know middle school is kind of 
like your baby in terms of health because you really get to write your own curriculum. So what are you guys doing? What are some of the big focuses in health and in really encouraging students to be safe and to be empowered? Um, yeah, well, I mean, both Cam and myself were really, really fortunate that when we both arrived at our school, we already had middle school electives that were purely health. Um, and we're so fortunate that mm. our school places so much importance on that um, and that it's not combined with PE like many, many other schools and that it's, it's three yes. separate middle school electives and at all your levels it is its own subject. So the fact that our school sees health as such a priority is just phenomenal. I think at a middle school level, it's really nice that the students have an opportunity to choose a topic that kind of resonates with them. We have three electives, child development studies, human sexuality and health and lifestyle. So depending on what kind of topics the students are engaged in to begin with, they can choose that, which is fantastic because you'd hope that they'd have already a little bit of intrigue there, a little bit of interest, some more things that they want to delve into deeper. So I think always starting with that student focus of what they wish to achieve and what they wish to learn at middle school electives is fantastic because, as you said, we have a bit more freedom with Year 9 and 10 students. We also have Year 9 and 10 combined in middle school classes at our school, which I think is a wonderful, wonderful thing because it gets them out of their comfort zone a little bit being with students that are not in their year level and really opens their eyes, I think, to differing perspectives. I think that's a really great thing too. For me personally, I'm teaching child development studies at the moment and Cam is teaching human sexuality, so I might let him talk a bit more about some of the topics in that as well. But for child development, I think some of the topics that we cover, particularly in the last kind of, I don't know, couple of years, I think there's a lot more light being shed on topics like that fertility is a journey for everybody and talking about that. So we used to just look at conception very much that I guess the perspective of making smart sexual decisions, contraceptives, STIs, things like that. But I've loved in child development really looking at it from the perspective of fertility is such a different journey for every single individual person, couple, and that there can be so many different factors that come into play with that and so many hardships that can come into play. And then really good discussions have begun surrounding the topics of endometriosis a lot of my friends, I'm in my 30s now, my early 30s, and I have many friends who actually had endometriosis that was undiagnosed for years. And then when they, yeah. I guess, came to a point where they wanted to try and conceive, they said, I just really wish that I'd known what to look for earlier. And I think having those discussions with the class being predominantly female, there are some male students who gain a lot from it too, but it's mostly females. They are really confident to have those open discussions. So we talk about what signs to look for and that if you're having a really, really painful and really heavy period and that, you know, that could be abnormal, you need to go to your GP and get that checked out and, and things like that that they just are not aware of. And then talking about things like miscarriage, that's been such a topic that I've been really, really passionate about opening up the discussion surrounding that because once again, I have many people in my life, many friends who have suffered miscarriages and it's just been such a taboo mm -hmm. topic for a number of years. So I think it's really important to normalise that as something that is okay to talk about and there's no stigma attached to that. So I think topics like that, we're just so fortunate that we can delve 
more into at that level and that students are not afraid to ask those things. I had my whole class the other day doing pelvic floor exercises because one of my friends is a one of my friends is a pelvic floor physio and she said, you know, no one's ever too young to start strengthening their pelvic floor. And we're talking about that and strengthening their muscles. And then a number of the kids said, Oh, that makes sense. That's why my mum can't do star jumps or jump on the trampoline and, and things like that. Um, so I think yes. um, there's no topic that's that's off limits to talk about when it's a safe and respectful environment. And that's what I absolutely love about it. And just really breaking down stigma of certain topics and shedding some light on certain topics to give students that new perspective is awesome. I really love the topic about endometriosis because I know there's a number of people in my family that have suffered with Mm. it as well as lots of friends. And one of my really good friends who has stage four endometriosis sent me a podcast. It's called Full Story, I think. And it's about a woman who's created a pain, like almost like an art mm. piece, you know, what is a performance art. And it's where you strap yourself into this machine that she's created that simulates the pain that has been described and experienced by endometriosis sufferers. Wow. It's so, so powerful. I'll put the podcast in the show notes because most people couldn't get above a four pain threshold and most people that live with that condition severe condition are up in that sort of eight to 10 constantly. And they made them with this thing on try and send an email because that's the thing is often people with chronic pain are expected to just get on with it. And people in that situation, they actually had some gynecologists in there who diagnosed endometriosis, but didn't understand the feeling and the sensation. And Mm -hmm. It was this whole idea that you can't really measure pain. If I say I've got yeah. a headache, you don't really know what that is. You know what yeah. it's like, but it, my pain headache could be a 10. Yours could be a three. You could say get over it when I'm really debilitated by it. I mean, it was endometriosis awareness week the other week. I think those conversations around women's health are huge to be having. Yeah, really, really huge. And again, as I said earlier, I feel privileged to be able to have these conversations also with my history with the Butterfly Foundation, body image, self-esteem and healthy relationships with food is something that I have a real passion for and something that I really, really love discussing with the students too because that's, gosh, changing so much with the world of social media all the time, things like that. So that's another area that we can always sink our teeth into and always be really fluid with changing that and gaining a lot of perspective from the students because they have so many more influences that impact their self-esteem as what we did when we were teenagers. So that's a really interesting topic to discuss as well in our classes. Did you see the recent Khloe Kardashian scandal? Yeah, I did see that. Untouched picture of her was released and they got it removed legally yeah. from the internet because they are in such control of their image and no image is released without it being edited, photoshopped, yeah. retouched. And it just goes to show that this image, she looked beautiful from what I saw yeah. of it. She just looked real. She didn't have... And what an amazing, amazing opportunity that she had there to, yeah. to preach a body positive message and yeah. she went the other way. She could have made such an impact Absolutely. in terms of celebrating what we perceive as flaws or imperfections. But, yeah, that I was so disappointed yeah. that, that it was handled that way because that was a chance to send yeah. a really great message to millions of, of young yeah. girls. So, so sad. And it wasn't taken. It's so sad. 
totally. And filters, filters on people's faces when, yeah. you know, they're... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what about you, Cam? What was the elective that you are teaching currently? Sorry. So I'm currently, I've got human sexuality at middle school at the moment. It's, yeah, like Em said, one of our three electives. It's basically, it's almost like sex ed on steroids, if you like. It's really trying to move beyond sex ed being about reproductive systems, uh, anatomy, you know, safe sex, STIs. It's, I guess typically that's what most sex ed is about, but we have an amazing opportunity at our school to be able to talk about sexuality for six months mm. and what that does is it means we can explore things in a lot of detail and a lot of depth i think one of the biggest concerns and i'm glad i really like that you said that laura that you know you, that your kids will be able to you know go through and, and do subjects like mm. this that allow them to learn about health because i feel the same way having three boys mm. of my own we see it now we see young boys learning their sex ed from pornography yes. and we we know how harmful that is and the dangers of learning about sex from porn is it's really evident and I guess the analogy that I often use it's you know me being a teacher you know if my three boys said dad you know I want to be a teacher when I grow up what's it like or dad what's high school like if I said to them you know just go and watch Harry Potter that's pretty much exactly what high school's like. Yes. Um, it's the same thing as them coming to me and saying, you know, Dad, what's sex all about? If I said go and watch porn, you'll learn everything you need to mm. know, it's going to set them up for failure because, yeah, there'll be some similarities mm. and there'll be some things that will look the same, but there's so much that's different, so much that's fake and so much of it that's dangerous. Yes. And um, it's it's one of those things where, you know, for us, if we were just to talk about sex in our subject, it would be over fairly quickly we'd have a couple of lessons worth but you know for us we get to talk about you know body image we get to talk about sexual decision making and consent the challenges of progressive consent and enthusiastic consent we get to talk about gender equality and the dangers of rigid social norms around gender and what it looks like from a local level versus what it looks like globally and some of the atrocities that you know young girls and females have to endure on a daily basis, you know, things about respectful relationships and sexualization of children and sex in advertising. Uh, and, and what we hope is that all these things help our students to gain a really strong understanding of their own sexuality and for them to, to realize that sexuality is not a dirty word. It's a really big part of who they are. But our sexuality is it's influenced by knowledge and that knowledge is power. And it's a shame that, you know, so many young kids and Laura in your experience and your education that you just don't get that and like Em said it's a privilege that if we have students sitting in our class who aren't having these conversations at home that you know for 45 minutes a day or whatever it is we're able to drip feed some stuff that we hope is going to have a really big impact on on their life outside of our classroom so yeah we are privileged and and we hope that the things that we teach make a difference and I often think would I be happy for my sons to be you know in my class and I really would be. I think it's it's so important to their their own development of their own sexuality, and uh, we're really lucky to have a school that supports that. So it's lots of fun as well. It's so yeah. much fun teaching this stuff. Do you find that the kids are embarrassed to talk about some of these things? Are they excited to talk about some of these things? As I said, we would not have been having these conversations. And the unfortunate thing is, you you brought up pornography before. Is that from my experience, there was no way any girl yeah. was watching pornography. That was embarrassing and shameful. And yet 
yeah. the Catholic boys' school across the road, they were all watching it. And so what's mm-hmm. going on is when girls that don't watch it and boys that do watch it have an encounter together, it's deeply confusing and confrontational and seriously quite problematic. And one of my friends who I went to high school with was saying that they had been notified that some of the grade five boys from her daughter's school were watching pornography on their phones at lunchtime one day. And so it's coming down, you know, so I I am very interested in what you're saying around those kinds of things. And also I'm sure one of the lessons that I was taking as an emergency teacher was one around consent. And I mean, we've just come off this whole thing with the New South Wales police. I'm not sure exactly what his position was, but he wanted to create the consent app that was obviously deeply problematic. But it just goes to show that people just really aren't aware of what needs to be spoken about around consent. And I'd love you guys to talk about it. Yeah, it's interesting that compulsory consent education is now being pushed through in Victorian government schools. And like I said, for us, uh, with a health faculty that's separate to PE, this is stuff that we've been doing for years. So we always feel like we're a little bit ahead of where society is or you know, where the politicians are. But we know how important consent is and we know it's not just as mm. simple as yes and no. We know that when we talk about consent that there are so many grey areas that it becomes a real challenge for students to, to understand it. And like we said, we start with what consent is, but then being able to talk about progressive consent and that, you know, any time you're engaging in any type of sexual activity, that throughout that whole process, you've got to make sure that the other person feels comfortable and is consenting to what they're doing. And enthusiastic consent is the person saying yes, but they really obviously mean no. And from a, a moral point of view, you know, you want to make sure that the other person is is happy and engaged and consenting to what they're doing. So, then we start to talk about alcohol and consent and all the gray areas that that brings up in terms of, you know, mm. how did you know how drunk someone is? Or if someone said yes, but they're under the influence of alcohol, are they in sound mind to be able to, to, to make an informed decision? And, and they're not. And then what it often comes back to is then they have their own, not experiences, but they have their own questions around what would happen if, or I heard a situation where, you know, there was a party and there was alcohol and both people were really drunk and something happened and the person woke up the next morning and they couldn't remember what they'd done and it becomes really complicated. But I think that's a really good conversation to have, that consent isn't just as simple as yes or no, that we do have the power mm-hmm. in any situation to say no and that's powerful, that we know that if ever we feel uncomfortable, as soon as we say no, as soon as we remove our consent, that we should, in a, mm-hmm. in a, you know, a legal sense, be safe. But what happens in all those situations where it's not quite as easy as that? And that's, I guess that's the challenge of consent education and and, and that's something that we're always trying to do and look at. But I think real-life context and and real-life situations really helps to teach this sort of stuff. Do you have anything to add, Emma? Yeah, I really agree. The real-life situations and getting them to just have more awareness and be more critical of the things around them and particularly with what Cam was saying with, you know, it should just be, a simple yes or no but there's so many different gray areas and there's things like stealthing now and things like with using protection and things like that to be really really aware of and with young females to look out for themselves that way as well and that Sorry, what, what was that word you said stealthing, stealthing did you say? so yeah What's that? um where laughing at me males it yeah um with males being really reluctant to use a condom so oh. trying in a situation where 
as Ken said, there may be alcohol involved, things like that, just trying as hard as they can to not wear one in the situation. Yeah, so it's... Or they'll remove it without... That's right, without consent, that's right. Without the, without the female yeah, knowing. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so that's that progressive consent aspect to it as well. I mean, you see it in movies all the time, don't you, where it's like, obviously I look at it from a female perspective because I'm female, but a female feels as though they cannot say no because they've gotten themselves into a particular situation in which yes. it looks as though, well, I've led them to this point. Yes. Did I know that this was what was going to happen? Have I gotten myself into this position? Well, it's easier to just mm-hmm. say yes, to just go along with it because I'm here now mm-hmm. and what will they say about me or what will this look like? People will have assumed anyway, yeah. right? So do you talk about things like that? Yeah, definitely. And we talk about victim blaming and it's often something that we feel like, you know, we have to aim at the boys that it doesn't matter what she was saying or it doesn't matter what she was wearing. It doesn't matter what time of night she was out or what her friends were doing. But often it's educating the girls as well that, Laura, like you said, we are at any given time able to make an informed choice, yes or no. And and Mm. at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. So especially, you know, we get into sexual assault and rapes and um, that victim blaming is something that we still see in the media today. We see it and, and mm. it's a real thing and being able to, to be empowered to make choices regardless of, I guess, societal expectations or what we think is expected of us or not expected of us is a, is a really tricky thing and like we said, it's probably just as much for the girls as it is for the boys. Absolutely. Yeah, I think... What you touched on before, can we have damaging gender stereotypes can be as well in society? I think when we break that down with the students and we talk about that with them, a lot of the comments often surrounding females and that gender stereotype is that often females are much more likely to put themselves in a situation where they feel uncomfortable rather than the male feeling uncomfortable because there's that kind of well-known stereotype of females being more eager to please and a lot of the time... As you said, if there is a female who has had um, no kind of education surrounding that and a male who their education has been from Mm -hmm. pornography, the different expectations there are so different, so, so different. And the confidence levels to speak up and that pleasing mentality and that I'll, I'll, I'll be seen as too assertive or a bitch or things like that for the female if they do speak up for themselves they're much more likely to put themselves in a scenario where they feel uncomfortable rather than causing someone yes. else comfort. These are big things. These are big conversations to be having. Do you feel as though the kids get it by the end? Do you feel like you are able to make those differences for them by the end of those sort of six-month, 12-month courses? I do. I think we have the majority of students in our classes are brilliant and I think yeah. I think they are a lot more progressive and forward thinking than older generations, to be honest. And it sort of, I guess it fills me with with optimism when I think about the future, when I see so many of these young people with such mature, you know, critical but well thought out ideas and able to express their opinions, but be able to listen to other people as well. And you're always going to have students who push back against some of the things that we talk about. And that's fantastic opportunities as well. And, And you don't, necessarily want a super passive class that thinks the exact same way that that you do you want students to challenge some of the things you say and we get a lot of it when we talk about gender and sex and you know even when we talk about sexual decision making and consent Uh, and it's really hard 
as a teacher to not want to shut that student down when they say something that you know is hurtful or, you know, discriminatory or goes against everything that you believe in. But often what happens is that the the 80% of the other students will do that for you. And it's not necessarily Mm -hmm. shutting them down, but it's being able to create, I guess, an environment where everyone can have an opinion. You've got to be able to justify your opinion though. Um, But then on top of that, you've got to be able to to listen to what other people think. And for me, one of the big ones was recently, like just did a, a really simple activity you know, around kind of an agree, disagree, justify type situation. And the topic was that, um, you know, catcalling women in public should be seen as a compliment. Mm-hmm. That should be something that should be seen as a compliment. And just that simple mm-hmm. statement and that you've got 90% of the class, you know, say completely disagree that it's it's not a compliment. And yeah. then, you know, there's a couple of often boys in the class will say, well, it is. I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't think that girl was attractive. So they have their opinion and they can they can hear it. But then yeah. you're able to choose someone from the class and often there's some you know, confident young girls who are able to express themselves and hearing it come from their mouths yeah. and for them to be able to say, well, it's not because I feel really threatened or I feel mm-hmm. really objectified and yeah. when guys do it, I don't know whether they're going to turn yeah. around at the roundabout and come back again or whether they're going to you know, yeah. get out of the mm-hmm. car. Um, it's not a compliment. It makes me feel really uncomfortable and I shouldn't have to deal with that when yeah. I'm walking down the street with my little brother or sister. And that's much more powerful yes. than me standing yeah. up there with a PowerPoint and saying that catcalling is, is wrong. So often it's the students who do the, the teaching for you and it comes from a place where they're just expressing their opinions. And like we said, you can you can have a different opinion but be able to listen and understand why someone is coming from a different point of view and that's really important. In, in, in health education. I love that. That's a great example. Yeah, and there's lots of ones like that. But um, like I said, majority of students are brilliant. And even when they're not, I can understand why certain students have different opinions. And uh, it makes sense if you look back at their upbringing or their culture or sort of where they've come from. We don't, we're not all the same and we all have differing opinions. But it's, it's just really important to understand that the basis of all of it, we're dealing with people and being respectful and understanding that everyone is different is really important. You know, at the end of the day, it's about other people's feelings. And uh, I think sometimes some students will lose sight of that and, and we forget that, I mean, any decision that we make, that it has the potential to impact on someone else. And, and that's something that we need to be mindful of. Mm. Do you have anything to add, Emma, before I move into the next question? I completely agree that I think the students, I'm confident in their abilities as well. And often too, they will do a lot of the teaching for us. Like I had a similar one, but it was to do with alcohol related scenarios. Um, and they had to rate the harm in the different scenario. And again, it was from their perspective talking about it. There was a certain scenario that someone offered you a drink of alcohol in their car and the different students were rating it so differently. And again, hearing from a female's perspective, about, well, no, if they offered it to me and if I, even though I, I do know them and they're my friend and I, I wouldn't be okay with that and I wouldn't be if I was alone and things like that. So, again, it was them, I guess, having their eyes open by different perspectives. But like you said, do we think that they are going to take that forward and learn from it? Well, they may not resonate with all the topics we teach, but yeah. you'd always hope that at least a couple of, of big ideas will resonate with them and they'll take them forward that's all you can hope that they'll take a few main things from what we've taught them and that it'll hopefully enhance their lives we were talking cam the other day i had someone who was interested in getting into 
like public speaking and sort of guest speaking at schools. And I was chatting to you about having guest speakers around big topics like drug and alcohol and things like that. And we had such a great conversation around whether that is beneficial in some of those contexts or not. And I'd really love you to talk about that because I learned a lot and it made a lot of sense and it's not research that I would often do because I'm not in that. Yeah. I'm not in that content really. I don't really do content often. So I think it's really interesting what you were saying about whether or not it is beneficial to be having guest speakers or people that have been through those situations speaking to students. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it is a tricky one. It's, um, I guess it's one that I've always treaded really carefully around in terms of having, especially around drugs and alcohol, people coming in as guest speakers and talking about their experience. And I guess it's not just my opinion. It's based on, it's based on research as well. But uh, I guess any time you have that testimonial education is what we talk about, you know, there's some benefits to that. There's someone coming in who obviously has some real world perspective. They have some knowledge on the topic. They probably have some, you know, credibility with the students as well. And generally students love guest speakers. Like it's so engaging to hear someone talk about their own personal experience. But I guess on the flip side, the thing that, you know, we want to be really careful about is, is we know that testimonial education is a failure in terms of drug education. Uh, and there's really, there's little or no evidence that, that it's more effective than a teacher delivering the material themselves. And I think what it comes back to is that, you know, students aren't doing drugs because they're not sure that they're harmful. Everyone mm. knows drugs are harmful. So having someone come in and talk about their experiences and, and the things that went wrong with drugs, we know we know drugs are bad. We would, we mm. would challenge, you know, any student who takes drugs to not know that they're harmful. Any student who smokes a cigarette, there's no one saying, oh, I had no idea that it was actually harmful. Well, we, we know that. Getting a, a potentially vulnerable or a risk-taking student who takes drugs, it's more than just them not knowing how harmful they are. So the dangers really is that there's the potential to, to glorify it. It's really difficult for yeah. a guest speaker not to talk in some positive light about their experiences because essentially people are taking drugs and they're getting some benefit out of it. So for a student who may be at risk or potentially vulnerable, that, that can sometimes seem attractive if we're getting into that scenario where we're talking about how good drugs can be and how good they can make someone feel. And also yeah. the potential that you have someone come in who's got through it. And not only have they got through mm -hmm. it, but they're super successful now. They're standing in front of people. They're demanding an audience. They're talking about their life and how well they've come out of it. There's also the potential there that, well, even if I did do it, I know I could find my way out and everything would be fine anyway. Yeah. So uh, I guess there's nothing necessarily wrong with having guest speakers come in, but we would just want to be really sure about how it fits into and how it complements what we've been doing in class already or how it's going to complement what we're going to be talking about in the future. Often we'll just have a guest speaker come in and we won't even speak to them before they come in and we just hope that they deliver good information. And if yeah. you've got a, a captive yeah. audience of, you know, 115, 16-year-olds, that's a big responsibility. So, you know, we would want to do a bit of research beforehand. We want to make sure that it's age appropriate. You know, there's nothing worse than having a guest speaker come yeah. in and talking to some year sevens or eights and, you know, what they're talking about is so inappropriate to the age group. Yeah. And then what's the follow-up as well? So do you follow up with your class about things that he spoke about, you know, they're going to have questions and they're going to have concerns if you just do a, a guest speaker and a, 
a talk and then next lesson you move on to something else. There's potentially a lot of really dangerous unanswered questions there. So there's pros and cons. I think at the end of the day, though, we know that it doesn't work in terms of drug education. Um, and there's probably the, the risk yeah. probably far outweigh the benefits from my opinion. But yeah, I guess that's where I come from. Yeah. I think it's really important. As I said, I've not really thought about it before. I don't often, well, probably have never had really a guest speaker come in anyway, but I do know in a number of schools that oftentimes you want to just deal with that situation, you know, or it's something that you can say to the parents, well, yeah, well, we had this guest speaker and it was wonderful. We we addressed these issues. But I think that really important part that you said, Cam, about follow-up is huge because that's cool. You get all your, your sevens and eights to an assembly they see this thing, it's a 45-minute presentation and then they're off to maths yeah. or then they're off to science and there's no follow-up and unless that's sort of embedded into the timetable in which you have those moments of reflection and discussion, which oftentimes high school doesn't have because it's so content-driven and off to the next class and whose responsibility is it? I mean, there's a huge running joke with English that we're constantly the disseminators of all the – when the assemblies yeah. are and who yeah. this because at least they've all got English mm. – but whose responsibility is it to have yeah, those conversations? And that's right. it's why I wanted to ask you on here because I think there needs to be the follow-up. And I'm actually interested too, Emma, because you worked at the Butterfly Foundation that you would have been this guest speaker. So what was that like for you on the other side? Um, yeah, I, I completely agree that it needs to be really, really, I think, carefully vetted first as to who is coming in and addressing those students because I think often when it is a brand new person who comes in and it's just for that 45 minutes or that 50 minute session, they'll be taking on board every single word that is said at the very start while they're sussing that person out. And I think they've got to be really, really careful with how things are said that can say before about glorifying certain things. And I think because I was that guest speaker and I guess for mine, it wasn't a topic such as drugs and alcohol, but it was preventing eating disorders, which is a huge issue um, and growing issue as well. But I think because I was talking about things like body image, self-esteem, healthy relationships with food, I had to do a lot of training first on awareness of what to look for in students, warning signs with eating disorders, things like that, and be really, really aware with language I was using, what topics I was covering, and that certain things I was saying wouldn't be triggering at all and things like that. So there was a lot of education that had to be done in PD for me first and also with our program that we implemented we also had a an educational resource that was given to schools as part of that program and 100% the aim was that they would do follow-up that yeah. was what it was that afterwards it would be put into practice and and it would be fleshed out and it would really be discussed and they could really run with that how they wanted and build a really good program for that within the school. That was the hope, that it would go hand in hand with that that education afterwards. But again, as you were saying, I had no control over that and, and oftentimes it would be, oh, we've ticked that box. We've had that guest speaker in and, and there wasn't that follow-up after. Yeah. That's so interesting. Do you know whether that sort of follow-up material was put into practice or you just it was just literally a hope that they did? We had feedback and we would check in with schools on a regular basis to see how they were implementing that. But at the same time, because it was all to do with cost and because we're a not-for-profit, schools had to pay for us to come out. It was really then up to that school whether they wanted to keep the relationship going and whether they could afford to have the relationship going with, with us come out for repeat sessions to check in and things like that too. 
I'm going to change my tact a little bit. So Emma, you are the head of the faculty. So obviously in a leadership position and also Cam, is it this year or was it last year that you took on this new leadership role that you've currently got? Uh, Yeah, end of last year, but really starting from scratch this year. Yeah. So I'd love to ask both of you as leaders, what is good educational leadership in your opinion? Tough one. So yeah, we've both we've both definitely taken on these roles at the same time, really, and stepped into them. Yeah. And this is definitely, I mean, as educators, we're always leaders, but this is my first leadership role that I've taken on. Yeah. It's a really exciting new challenge for me. I think for me personally, I just feel that I learn so much from collaborating with my colleagues and I would never in a million years claim to be the expert on anything. And I learn from them just as much as they learn from me. And you know, as corny as it is, we're all lifelong learners, but I, we all definitely learn so much yeah. from professional collaboration. So for me, I think that's why I was really excited to take on this role as opposed to, like, say, year-level coordination where I'm dealing with a cohort of students and I'm dealing with parents and things like that. I was very excited to work collaboratively with my colleagues. But to me, I think I hope that I can foster an environment where all of the health staff feel really supported and feel like I'm approachable and have that relationship that they can come to me about anything and ask me about anything and that they feel confident to collaborate Mm -hmm. because often staff can feel like they don't want to tread on anyone's toes or things like that but I definitely want it to be a really open collaborative environment. I think to having that support is really important in a leader that people feel like you truly do care and practicing what you preach as well is really important I think being confident in what what you're doing and passionate about what you're doing as well. Like I really hope that if my staff feel really inspired and passionate and that I'm always providing opportunities for for them to get excited about what they're teaching and be passionate, then the end goal is obviously the students and the end goal is obviously for health education to be the biggest and best subject area that it can possibly be. But in order to do that, staff need to feel like they're appreciated and their well-being is being put first so then they're the best teachers they can be if they're the best teachers they can be then students will want to choose health and it will flourish as a subject so for me it's well-being of staff needs to be paramount over anything else I love that what about you Cam I think for me it's just that it's the understanding that students have to be at the center of everything that we do and I know for me when I think about good leadership in any sense of the word, whether it's in a coaching context, a sporting context or a boardroom or a school, I know what I respond to is that vulnerability and our leaders, Mm. you know, it's not a marketing pitch. It's not a sales exercise. It's, It's this real clear idea that we don't have all the answers and that we know the research is constantly changing, but everything that we do is for the good of our students and I think when that message comes through to me, then again, I'm, I'm all in. I really respond to that. And I think teachers do as well. And I think we can pick up really quickly on egos and agendas. And yeah. I think we all got into this job because we love making a difference and we love seeing young people maximize their potential and, and reach their full potential. And I think sometimes we can lose sight of that a little bit, but when it comes back to it and, and the basis for everything we do is making sure that students mm-hmm. at the res- are at the centre of that. Um, 
and like I said, for me, it's that it's that vulnerability from a leader that we're all in it together. We don't have all the answers, but um, regardless of the mistakes we make or the, or the efforts that we make, it's, it's always going to be about the kids, and, and that's something that I definitely respond to. And honesty, right? Having everything out on the table, yeah. knowing 100%, yeah. where we're going together, I think that's really important. And, I mean, it must be hard in leadership to allow every staff member to have a voice because you need to make decisions and feeling as though you are part of the decisions and along for the ride is big rather than just being talked at and being told how it's going to be. I think just knowing what the agenda is from the beginning rather than trying to feel like you've got to figure it out. Yeah. And we know that that staff or that collective efficacy is so powerful. And I think for anyone, we just want to feel like we are making a difference and, I think sometimes we can get so caught up in the the machine that is teaching it and all of the the challenges and the day to day stuff that we lose sight of the the fact that we do have a huge impact and I think as leaders we need to to make staff aware and keep on reminding them continually reminding them that they do make a difference yeah. and that every day they make a difference and we know that that collective teacher efficacy is more powerful in terms of effect size than than anything else, it's more powerful than a, a kid's SES, their parental involvement, their home environment. The ability of teachers to feel like they are making a difference is the most important thing. So I think we have a responsibility as as leaders to make sure that we're constantly reminding it and upskilling staff yeah. to, to remind themselves that they are amazing at what they do and what they do on a daily basis has a huge impact. Yes. Well, that's why I've continued this podcast. Yeah. For that exact reason, because I think that, and naturally I have these conversations in the staff room, you poor things have been caught in my conversations in the social staff room, because I love talking to teachers about why they want to teach, because exactly right, you know, you're at the photocopier and you're trying to get to the microwave and then you're trying to get to the next class. And we don't often have these conversations around the why of it. And it's so inspiring to talk to other teachers because my why could be different to yours, but we are all in it to make a difference and to put the students first and to do a better job today than we did yesterday. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think sometimes we, as teachers, we want to be professionals and we are professionals and we want to be valued, but we can get a bit complacent sometimes as well. And, and we can be a bit reluctant to want to keep on learning and getting better ourselves. And I think that's something that we challenge our students to do every day. We want our students to to continually strive to be the best they can be, but we are so time poor in our job and sometimes we're so busy that we forget to invest in ourselves. And I think that's moving forward as educators, we need to continually be upskilling and, and, and getting better at what we do because we know that that's going to benefit our students. So, yeah, definitely. And I love what you're doing, Laura, because you are an amazing teacher and oh, thanks, we man. know how amazing you are and it would be very easy for you to rest in your laurels but that want for you to continually get better and improve is what makes you amazing so Thank if you. we can all take a little piece of that I think the education system is is going to be okay yeah yeah and look I mean look how many episodes I've had Cam do you know what I mean I there's so many people out there that are doing amazing things yeah so last two questions, big questions. Second last one is, what are your hopes for education moving forward? A lot of times there can be an emphasis on what we need to be achieving and less emphasis on going back to actual basics of staff wellbeing, student wellbeing being the focus. And I think being health focused myself, I see that as a really, really huge priority. 
even just recently with some modules we were doing, there was like five different sections of a OH&S type module that we were learning about. And there was a section at the end that was on staff wellbeing. And I thought, oh, that's really great that they've they've um, included this part. That's fantastic. All the other four modules had about seven slides that we worked through. The staff wellbeing module was one slide. Yeah. And it was just tick box and that was it. And I think yeah. my hope is, like we were saying before, that it's actually questions as to what staff need to be inspired to do the best they can for students. Like we said, having those conversations as to why they're doing what they're doing, what inspires them, and also feeling really appreciated for what they're doing and reassured that they're doing a good job as well is really, really important because I think it's there is a lot of focus on the end goal. I think that's one of the main things. Do you know what I've really noticed with COVID? Obviously with COVID now, if you are suspected to have had it or to have it, it is mandatory that you stay home and you're unwell. And that's actually revolutionary in a way because so many teachers do not stay home when they're sick. It's easier to come in. It's easier than writing an extra and you just power through it. I'm 100% guilty of doing it. I remember being quite pregnant with my daughter and being so sick and the AP at the time called me because I'm never away, not for more than one day. And I'd been away for two days or three days and I was coughing and I was saying to her, I'll be trying me back tomorrow. And she said, I'm going into the daily organizer and I'm saying you will not be in for the rest of the week. And honestly, I think I needed that permission. Yeah. I needed someone to say to me, and I was heavily pregnant, like that should have been enough. Mm. But I needed her to say to me, you are not coming in. I will handle this. You won't. I had you two year twelves. I felt so responsible, and I see now with COVID, everyone else is saying we well, can't come in. Yeah, you know, and especially you get a COVID test, you can't come in. So in a way, that's reshaping things a little bit. Where people are thinking, yeah, I probably shouldn't come in. I'm not well. Yep, I agree. I love that turnaround and that shift. Mm. I really think that's just best practice that we can possibly have is to actually stay home when we're unwell. Yes. And there's that saying, you know, when saying yes means saying no to yourself, say no. And I think so many of us are so bad at saying no. Yes. Definitely. Particularly teachers who are on contracts. We see it a lot. Then there's a really high burnout rate with teachers. And I think it's it's a really, really important message. Really important message. I totally agree. What about you, Cam? Hopes for education. Yeah, it's a big one, isn't it? I hope that education regardless of what happens it's still student-centric and that we invest in teachers I think that's something that like I said before that I hope we're able to do more of that you know training and retraining teachers we know that we're sending students off now into a world that's sort of unknown it's ever-changing and so many more challenges that they have that we didn't have and I guess I just think about myself as a teacher in the last 10 or 12 years, the things that have changed in health education that I constantly need retraining. I, I sometimes feel really nervous mm. or uneasy about teaching things that students are experiencing now that I didn't when I was in high school. So uh, I think we need to invest yeah. in teachers. We need to make sure, like I said, that we are kind of training and retraining teachers consistently and that, you know, that, that we're, we're teaching kids how to learn and not necessarily what to learn. I think we're doing an okay job and moving away from that. 
you know, year 12, it's still a challenge and we know we teach to, to exams and study scores, yeah. but I hope that we are also celebrating different types of intelligence and, and skills as well. I think sometimes when we talk to our senior students, they're very much of the belief that intelligence is their ability to get, you know, a, a high study score. But really knowing that emotional, social intelligence, yes. there's lots and lots of different ways to be smart. And in the world that they're going to be entering, those skills are going to be so important and that they need to, to value that. And I hope that our assessment is able to value that as well. But that's obviously a big challenge. But like Em said, yes. lifelong learning that they're not just being educated once. This is just the start. But it's it's that, I guess, ability to, to invest in themselves. And we hope that an education system is preparing students for the challenges that, that this volatile world is going to throw at them because they're probably challenges that we can't even anticipate yet. Yeah. I had a careers counsellor on last year and she was talking very much around the fact that she hates the ATAR score as the only measure of success and ability to get into university. And she was saying she was hoping that we'd have more of an American model, you know, where there's essays and then there's community service and things like that. And I just saw the college admissions scandal on Netflix. Have you guys seen it? No. It's so interesting. Well, it's the one where, you know, like Laurie Lachlan and Felicity Huffman were jailed because it was they were found out for ultimately buying a place at these Ivy League I've been meaning to watch that universities. On my and to me too. You're right. It's so it's very, very interesting. Because I actually don't think we have the right model yet. I don't think we can mm. see it. Finland maybe. I don't know what their model is, but they they seem to be doing amazing things. But <laughs> again, I was watching um God, it sounds like I watch so much TV. What's it called? Uh, <laughs> Big Fires Everywhere with Reese Witherspoon. And that was oh, yes. so good. So, so good. Talks Love about privilege that. really, really well. But how they then feel as though they have to have these elaborate stories in order to write an essay. And if they haven't, then they feel like they're a failure and then they don't get the right mm-hmm. scores. And then, you know, again, I mean, we, mm-hmm. I've talked about this too regarding COVID last year that I tutor a boy at a private school when 95% of them got 80 and above for their ATAR score, which is incredibly high. Mm. Yeah. But how yeah. many of them had but to take on? Victim of yeah, how many of them had to yeah. take extra shifts at Coles because their parents lost yeah. their jobs? And, you know, so there's, so there's this huge privilege element to it that, yeah, if we could validate everyone on different levels, that'd be great. But then I feel like there's, there's even more additional pressure on on getting those um, trans that, what am I trying to say? Well, yeah, just something that you can show, something that you can show that you've done all of these things, which again creates even more pressure. And so I don't, I agree with you 100% in theory. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that the model is out there. Hmm. No, I don't, I don't know how you mm-hmm. do that. And like you said, that kind of like tangible. Thank you. That was what I was looking for. Thank you. Tangible, yeah. <laughs> I could have jumped in and helped you, but I thought I'd just let you go. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how you do that, but I just see, even at VCE, you see so many students, just their self-esteem gets smashed by Mm -hmm. that comparison. And like I said, so much of our job is counselling and motivating and coaching and and instilling Mm that the the process is so much more important than the end result. And it's easier to say that, but when we place so much value on that end score, it's really hard to change that in our students' yeah. thinking. But if I think about and I look at, you know, past students who have, who have gone through my classes, 
so many of them are doing amazing things. So many of them are happy and successful who didn't necessarily smash an exam or a, or a sack because they're good people and they're, they care and they're kind and their work ethic was amazing and they did their best most of the time. Uh, and we've got to value that and that that's, that's enough and that that's the thing that will probably define their success in the future more so than a degree or a score. But the way the system is set up and it's really hard to fight against that, but it's, I guess, yes. a challenge as teachers that we have to balance that as well. Mm. Last question. This is more of a personal mm-hmm. question, but greatest lessons that you've ever learnt? That's a biggie. Oh, actually, it kind of does. One of them is to do with teaching. Sorry, I'll be, I won't make this one a personal one, but it really Go for it. segues nice with what we're saying. I think early on in my teaching career, as we were saying before with teachers early on, a lot of the focus is on learning the content because a lot of the content we teach is so detailed. But one of the things I've massively learned, the lessons I've learned with teaching is that like we were saying before, there's so many different ways to be smart and not just focusing on the end result. And the number one thing that I always prioritise now is that 50 minutes of when those students are in my lesson, whether they learn something or not, great. What their results are like, great. But what I try and focus on is that they feel comfortable and happy for that 50 minutes because students have so many things going on in their lives that we can't even comprehend or we don't know about often. And I just want them to be distracted from that for that 50 minutes whatever they have going on in their lives I want them to be present and enjoying their time in health and in my lesson and be happy that's the main thing so I think that's been one of the main lessons I've learned that I just really really want that 50 minutes when they're with me for them to be comfortable happy and enjoying themselves and have a break from all of the other issues going on in their world and they need to feel comfortable to learn effectively anyway that has to be at the forefront I think. In terms of me personally because I'm early 30s now I think one of the main things that I've learned going from my 20s to my 30s is just being so much more comfortable and confident with my relationship with myself 100% um, with what we touched on before with saying no. I'm so much better now at boundaries and saying no to things and really really just putting my own well-being first. I think that's been a massive thing and a massive thing that lots of people in their lives take a really long time to get there is to there's kind of that hustle culture in society and that if you're really, really busy and you're really, really hectic, then you're winning at life and things like that. But I think I've one of the biggest lessons I've learned that to be successful, you need to just be present and enjoying life and there and just really, really grateful for the things that are around you and kind to the people that are around you and that's it. So I think one of the main things I've learned is definitely just, yeah, saying yes to myself more and being present and enjoying the moment and just comfortable in my own skin. I think as you go into your 30s, you definitely are more comfortable and confident in your own skin and that relationship with yourself, definitely. There's been some really great campaigns recently around disrupting grind culture, which is exactly what you're talking about. Mm. So good. Yeah, to to disrupt the hustle and the busy as a badge of honour, all that stuff, and to see that Mm -hmm. it's just a capitalist ploy. (laughs) We're just all Mm -hmm. drunk the Kool-Aid for so long. I I just wish the narrative could be flipped, like the narrative would completely be flipped and success in life can be measured on so many other aspects. What about you, Cam? Big lessons. Yeah, I like that from him. 
And same with me, I guess, just moving into my 30s uh, nine years ago. It's, um... <laughs> a, little longer, a little bit longer ago than recently. me, but that's fine. Recently. Yeah, yeah we've, we've both moved into our 30s. But um, <laughs> I guess it's that same, yeah, being comfortable in my skin as well. And you watch a lot of other teachers and you can't be someone you're not, though. Yeah. And, and, and knowing that you have your own strengths and it's just exhausting to try and get up there every day and be someone you're not like I'm Mm -hmm. not someone who can get up there and tell stories Mm -hmm. I can't bring a massive amount of manic energy I can't tell stories about my family and I'm just not I can't do it but you know I've got a dry sense of humor and that kind of works I've got other things that I feel like work for me but that's got to be enough I can't be someone who I'm not and I guess I think about all the teachers who I think of as being great teachers and they're all just relationship people. They're all just people who are amazing at building relationships. Mm. And regardless of our strengths or weaknesses as educators, I think if we have a kindness to us and we have an ability to show our students that we, we genuinely care about them and it's not a fake care, it's, it's we do, we care about them as people. Um, and if that's underpinned with kindness, I think that overcomes a lot of issues in the classroom. And I think for me, that's something that I always fall back on is, you know, being busy. And if I feel like I'm not doing as great a job as I could, at the end of the day, if I feel like, am I still being kind to my students? Am I still showing them that I care about them? I think that's that's the most important thing. And, and building those relationships is the underpinning of everything else that we do. And if we don't have that, all the best pedagogy, the assessment, everything else just falls away yeah. if we can't build that relationship with our students. I want to tell this story as like the last thing. I caught up with the ex-student that we both had several years ago now, Cam, who's probably about 23 or 24 now. And we both had her in year 12 and she said to me that when she found out she had me for English, she was happy because she knew that I had really high expectations and I'd push her all the way to the finish line. And when she had you for health, she was kind of like, I don't know if this guy's going to push me as much as I need. And what she found at the end was that the balance was exactly what got her through year 12 because she had a teacher that had the high expectations, but she really loved the fact that she had someone who was looking out for her in one way and ensuring that she was taking that break and setting boundaries as well as doing everything in your class cam and also somebody like me who was saying, yeah, you can do this. You can do that. You can get that result. And it was the combination of our teaching styles that she attributes to doing really well. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of other things. I can't probably take all the credit, but we can try. (laughs) But it was that balance that you and I brought without even knowing that that's what we were doing. And I think that's the beauty of teaching. That is amazing. And you, don't, you don't even know. We all have something. That, yeah, that's you really know, cool. Dream team, guys. I was, really, I was really touched by it when, when she told she me. Was, she was actually blessed to have both of you, though, because you are phenomenal Thanks, teachers. Sam. But I think that's where we, um, we do often lose sight of we are a team as well, aren't we? Like we, we get very faculty orientated or, you know, it's – mean study scores versus different faculties but we, we're all in it together and mm-hmm, especially yeah. for those year 12s it's such a team approach and yeah mm. different personalities work for different students and understanding mm. that it's a pretty volatile time for them so it's nice to know that our strengths can combine yes to, yes to be a Thank you guys have to pardon yeah. <laughs> Captain Captain and planet. our powers combine 
I could literally sing that same song just P.S. as a child from the 90s. Right. I could sing that whole song. Yeah, same. We could just have that as a little outro. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for giving up all your time. Can you believe it's been 90 minutes? 90 minutes? No, it's been um, it's been awesome. I haven't had to put the kids to bed, so you've given me 90 minutes of free time, Laura. Thank you very much. Pleasure, pleasure. Thank you so much, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of your holidays, and I'll see you back at school. Enjoy the well-deserved break, guys. Thank you so much for having us, Laura. Thanks, Laura.